Great to be here, friends. My name is Ray, one of the pastors here. And if you're online, gee, it's good to have you with us. If you're in the overflow, if you're in parents' room, uh, if you're here gathered today, if you're here for the first time, what a joy it is to be gathered in the name of Christ. You know, every, I think this is a bit, I'll just drop this down a bit. There, it's it. Every big decision in life, and we have a few, don't we, to make, always comes with a cost, a price, uh, and which means you don't want to rush big decisions. You know, what do they say? Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> uh, take marriage. It's probably, no, it's probably the second biggest decision in your life that has the you know, second most implications. Whether your culture is to date or, and then get married or whether your parents have arranged it and you get some you know, opinion expressed. However it happened, the whole idea of couples and parents getting together and knowing each other before the big I do happens is a very wise thing because, because the, the cost involved is so great and you want to avoid the damage that's done if it doesn't go well. As a general rule, as a general rule, don't propose on the first date. Not real smart. <laughs> I do know people who've done it and got away with it, but it's just not a wise thing to do. Now, of course, the greatest and biggest decision you'll ever make is the decision to follow Jesus. I had a friend of mine who was a fellow pastor in my previous church, and he would share Christ with people, and he would encourage them to make a decision to follow Christ. And when they were at that point to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, he says, okay, now let me try, let me try to talk you out of it. And you think, why would he do that? He gets them to the point of wanting them to say yes, and then he says, let me try to talk you out of it. Why? Because he's doing what I think Jesus is doing. He's getting them to count the cost. Why? Because he wants, in the end, them to run the whole distance out because the Christian life is a marathon. And that's exactly what Jesus does. We're going to look at Matthew 8 before we look at Matthew 9. And after Jesus' demonstration of his power over the storms, over suffering, over sickness, over sin, over Satan, you hear the call, follow Jesus, but count the cost. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, non-Jewish territory. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is not a lawyer he's talking about. He's talking about a well-respected Bible teacher and scribe. Um, And, you know, you think, wow, if this dude converts, it's going to have massive implications. It's a bit like, I was thinking, it's probably like Elon Musk you know, uh, tweeting on X, you know, I've become a follower of Jesus. It's going to get the attention of everyone. Uh, But Jesus doesn't rush this man into the kingdom. Uh, He reminds him of what's at stake. For example, in verse 20, he says, Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man, that's Jesus, has no place to lay his head. Man makes a big promise. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Oh, big Big promise. But Jesus is saying, are you sure you mean what you're saying? Because the way of the Messiah is the way of the Messiah's people. I'm on my way to take my cross at Golgotha. You follow me, you'll need to take up your cross as well. We had to sit tight with Jesus, sit loose with our stuff. Why? Because Jesus is functionally saying, this earth is not home. It's so hard to believe that. It's not my home and it's not yours. 
We are aliens, we're exiles, we're foreigners. That's the language of the Bible. A bit like, I guess, we all feel here in Dubai, that we're, we're guests. This is not our ultimate landing place. We're all going back to our home country. That's a, that's a nice image to have as you think about earth itself. This is not home. Our passport reads, citizen of heaven. So live like it. And you're probably thinking, oh, Jesus, shh, don't. Don't emphasize the hard bits. Just focus on the positive, the upside of being a follower of Jesus. Let them find out eventually the, the costs involved. But Jesus has too much integrity for that. And he's not, he's not interested in, in growing a crowd. It's just not on his agenda. He wants everyone to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. And even if he has to lose you, he'll be prepared to lose you rather than have you come on your terms and not his. Because in the end, it's no relationship at all. Instead of making it easier, Jesus seems to make it harder. I remember a, a woman um, in my previous church, I was interviewing her, Ramabai. Oh, my goodness, could she cook? You could never invite her to your place for a meal because she would always bring these canisters of Indian food, one of which would be that butter chicken. Oh, my goodness, it was so good. <laughs> It was the best butter chicken I've ever tasted. Anyway, get to the point, Ray. I'm interviewing Grandma Bai, and, and she's telling me it's Father's Day. And I'm saying, tell me about your father. And he was a, a pastor in India. And uh, he said, oh, he called me up the other day to, uh, to tell me that he wanted to talk to me about the inheritance and the will. And, he, and she thought, oh, goody. And, uh, and he said, now, Ramabai, your mother and I have decided that we, because you and your brother and sister are established now, you've got your own homes, that we're going to give our, all of our possessions to the poor and the work of mission in India. I said, all of it? She said, all of it. I said, how are you feeling? I was a bit shocked. And she said, I'm so proud of him. Now, I've got to tell you, I've never seen a more stunned congregation than that congregation then. We couldn't work out what we were shocked about more, what the father said or her response. Her father had told her the inheritance is going to the poor and mission work in India, and she's saying, I'm so proud of him. Wow, that did not register with us. But you see, she, he had taught her from a wee little child that this earth is not home. And he was acting like it. Now, don't misunderstand. He, he had made sure that they were all taken care of, but now he's also demonstrating something far more profound. This is not home. And he was acting like it. Corrie Tam Boone, she was uh, uh, put into a concentration camp because of her family. They were hiding Jews from the Nazis. She said this. She said, I've learned to hold all things loosely so God will not have to pry them out of my hands. I kind of, that's a very wise set of words. I have learned to hold all things loosely so God will not have to pry them out of my hands. Because let's face it, when you die, they're all taken out of your hands. Now, if that wasn't hard enough, telling uh, the, uh, the teacher of the law that uh, basically heaven is not, uh, earth is not your home. Listen to what he says to the next person, verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That's reasonable. I'll follow you. I've just got something to do. It's, my dad has just passed away. I want to go to the funeral. Now, even the meanest of bosses will let you have half a day off to go to your dad's funeral. 
Listen to what Jesus says in verse 22. But Jesus told him, follow me. And then what? Let the dead bury their own dead. Are you serious? I remember the first time I preached this passage, it was the, there was someone in the congregation I was so mindful of. It was my former minister's wife, and she had just buried her husband of 50-plus years. And I, it was then I realized how offensive are the words of Jesus, that Jesus, how much Jesus demands of his followers let the dead, dead, are you serious, Jesus? Now, he's using what's called hyperbole, exaggerated statements. You know, Jesus will say, unless you hate your mother and father, you're not worthy of me. Clearly, he doesn't want you to hate your mother and father. He wants you to love them. But he's saying the difference between me and your next of kin is daylight. Jesus is saying, have I got your attention? There's nothing more important than family except me. Except me. Now, the temptation we're always wrestling with is this. We either neglect God by neglecting our parents, that's one sin, or we use our parents to neglect God, that's the other sin. I wonder which one are you? Because we'll, we'll fall into one of those two errors. Let me say it again. We either neglect God by neglecting our parents and family, or we neglect or we use our parents to neglect God. We either spend our days fearing for their, uh, fearing their rejection, our parents' rejection, or living our whole life based on decisions so that we can secure their approval. And whatever excuse is keeping you from saying yes to Jesus, Jesus is saying, think again. We in fellowship, we love grace, we preach grace, we sing amazing grace. But the great enemy to a healthy church, the true church, is cheap grace. You heard of that phrase? A easy believerism in Jesus that wants him as saviour but not Lord, wants the, the gifts but not the giver. Jesus, let's face it, he's the first mega, mega church pastor, right? I mean, he would get 10,000 at a time hearing him preach. But Jesus is not interested in holding a large, large crowd. It's not in, on his agenda. Uh, he will say things that are so offensive, he could lose the whole 10,000 in one hit. Why? Because he's interested in disciples who are radically committed to him. Uh, the theologian uh, pastor uh, Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Die to oneself and to live for Jesus. Jesus is on his way to taking up his cross and he's saying, if you follow me, you'll need to take up your cross as well. Again, he's not interested in counting the crowd. He's interested in true disciples who will willingly count the cost. No cheap grace for Jesus. I remember my nephew. I heard the story from my, from my sister-in-law, Sandy's uh, sister. She had uh, heard her son, uh, who was five at the time, my nephew, Jake, he was saying how um, he, he, she heard him praying quietly under the sheets. And she said, Jake, what are you doing? He said, I'm praying and asking Jesus to come into my heart. She said, oh, that's beautiful. She said, you know what you're actually praying when you pray that prayer? And he said, no, mum, what, 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 what am I praying? And she said, you're actually praying, Jesus, I want to do your will, not my will. I want, I want to do what you want me to do, not what I want to do. Oh, he thought. How do I ask Jesus out of my heart? 
she counted the cost for him. And at that stage, he wasn't ready to count the cost. Coming to Christ, what a radical transformation. The Lordship of Jesus reaches into every aspect, every moment of every day. And so helping others count the cost is such a loving thing to do. This photo was taken about six months before I came to Christ. I'm on the right. I'm the one with the, the big fro. So big, I used to walk sideways into hallways. And uh, see, you're thinking, what happened? Yeah. It's called time. It's called ageing. Anyway, I was so thankful to Pete because him and uh, my other friend Vince... They both, uh, they both, they heard I was thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus. I was reading my Bible and over a three-week period, and, uh, and they were worried for me because I was falling away from the pagan lifestyle that we all enjoyed. <laughs> so they sat me down in a pub one day, and they, they said, Ray, if you become a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to say no to these sins. <laughs> and they listed for about 20 minutes because we sinned in the same area. They went through this long list of things that would have to change. And it was so helpful to me because they were absolutely right. And at the end of it, I thought, you know what? Jesus is worth it. But I knew what I was turning away from when I was turning to him. And uh, I knew exactly what I was getting myself in for. And basically, after 43 years, there were no real surprises. Why? Because in the end, it took two people who weren't followers of Jesus at that stage took them to actually count the cost with me. And for that, I'm really thankful. So count the cost. And let me tell you, Jesus is so worth it. Amen? Amen, Amen indeed. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus and enjoy fellowship with him. That's not fellowship as in just church, but fellowship as in uh, partnership with him. Now, not everyone is saying no to Jesus, right? Here we've got Matthew in verse 9 of chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Here is Matthew. He will end up writing Matthew's gospel, so tradition tells us. He's marked out. We always have Matthew, the tax collector. Now, tax collectors were a particular breed within the people of God. They, they work for the Romans and they tax God's people. So they were particular. I mean, no one likes paying taxes anyway. That's why you came to Dubai, so you wouldn't have to pay personal tax. Oh, well, I know. But, but ta- these tax collectors were in a contractual relationship with the Romans, so they sided with the enemy. They betrayed their own people. That was the first reason why they were hated. The second reason was they overtaxed their people. Kids went to bed hungry because of these guys. They lined their own pockets with extra money that they, wasn't, they weren't entitled to. And here is Jesus' invitation, going to anyone and everyone, including tax collectors and sinners, come, follow me. It was for everyone. Come as you are. Not stay as you are, but it's come as you are on my terms. Because, yeah, there is a cost, but, boy, there is a joy. And notice here how Matthew is dining with Jesus and his disciples. Look at verse 10. I love this verse. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. That alone is worth preaching on. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him, Jesus, and his disciples. I love that picture. So Jesus is not only forgiving sins, 
He's fellowshipping with his with those he has forgiven, and he is feasting with them. And this becomes now a little anticipation, a picture of the age to come, where we're told that you and I will be sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and at the head of the table will be the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church. What a great day. Who's looking forward to that day? Oh, yes, bring it on, Lord, to be able to feast and not worry about gaining weight. No, uh, to, to feast in the presence of the Lord. What a beautiful, you know, it's amazing the pictures people have of the age to come. You know, I always, I always think of my friend who thought, you know, he didn't want to become a Christian because he thought heaven would be boring. I'm thinking, Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to be bored to death for all eternity. And, and the pictures of the age to come are so beautiful. And one of them, of course, is captured in that verse. This beautiful fellowship with Jesus, feasting at the table with him for all eternity. But not everyone's rejoicing and not everyone is feasting. There are those, you know, Jesus kept opening the doors to sinners and the religious people kept wanting to close the doors as quickly as possible. Questions were being raised now in this passage. Why is Jesus, who is supposed to be a holy teacher, eating with unholy sinners? Disgusting. Why why John the Baptist's disciples, they say, why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? We're fasting. Why aren't they fasting? They're feasting. They're celebrating. It's like Christians who you know, spend more time worrying about smoking and drinking and fasting than they, than they do about celebrating the fact that, or being burdened by the fact that you know, there are people out there who need to be saved. Kind of, we've got the emphasis wrong. But the real question is, why weren't they celebrating? Not why Jesus was feasting with sinners. The question is, why weren't they celebrating? And so they clearly had not grasped their need and the beauty of Jesus' grace. Look at verse 12. On hearing this, these complaints, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Side point, Jesus expects sick people to go to doctors. It's not a declaration that you don't believe. Amen? Very good. See that? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But you don't go. Why do we call Why do we call doctors? It's not for a chat. I don't, I don't make an appointment with a doctor because I'm bored or I need a conversation. There's something wrong with me, and, and I've worked out that he or she can do something about it. And if, and if they don't, and it gets worse, I could die. So they're sickness, doctor. Now, we are told that we're not just sick. We're not just seriously sick. We're spiritually sick, and we're dead in Christ. No, sorry, we're dead in our sins. That's how bad it is. And we need the ultimate doctor, the great healer, who will heal us not from just physical aches and so forth, but ultimately from the sickness of sin and death and judgment. The angel said to Joseph, do you remember? Name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he will do that because even in this passage we're told that the bridegroom will be taken away. And he'll be taken to a place where he will be left on the cross bearing the sins of the world. The church is not a museum for the saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So if you're wondering, I'm looking around. You know when you look on Facebook and social media, you look like everyone's got it together. You probably come to church and you think everyone's got it together. No one's got it together. No one has got it together, beginning with me. Let me say it again. No one has got it together. Amen? Amen. And that's why he says, then the next verse, he makes it even more clearer. Verse 13, 
I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. That is so-called righteous. I didn't leave the palace of heaven for those who think they're good enough for heaven. I came with the express purpose of those who realize they're not. Because if you think you're good enough for heaven by the quality of your performance on this earth, A, you will not ask for forgiveness. B, you will not go to Jesus for salvation. And C, you will look down on everybody else. That you will, you will not celebrate other people coming to Jesus. That's the problem here. And so Jesus says, functionally, point three, follow Jesus by having a heart for the lost. Count the cost so you'll love the lost. And so he rebukes those religious people who are finding reasons to not celebrate. And he says, guys, go back to your Bibles. Know what God's heart was always about. Then he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, and he says, I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. It's always been my heart's desire that you show mercy. Tell the world that the Son of Man has been given authority over all the nations, and that authority includes the forgiveness of every sin and every sinner. And here is a picture of that restoration in chapter 9, verse 10. Jesus was having dinner. Here's the, here's the mercy in chapter. Now they say a picture tells a thousand words. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. That's the new wine and new wineskins. I think Matthew was having a born again party. You know, have you heard of birthday parties? Have you heard it? Have you heard about born again parties? You know, when my two kids, um, uh, two of my three children, uh, gave their lives to Christ, they were about nine or ten at the time, and it was July the twenty seventh. I still remember it. And, and every year on July the 27th, we go out and have a born-again party for them. We wanted to celebrate. And they, they could go to Pizza Hut or McDonald's or KFC, wherever. And the, the point was this. I wanted them to know being born, very good. Being born again, much better. And you're thinking, I don't know the day I was born again. Well, don't worry. You don't need to know the day you're alive to know that you're alive. Sorry, you don't need to know the day you were born again to know you're alive in Christ. Just like you don't need to know the day, remember the day you were born to know that you're alive. Did I say that right? Okay, good. Because that one I think I tripped over myself. I won't bother doing it again. You've got the idea. So here's a suggestion for you. You know, who doesn't like to party? Why don't you have a born again party? Why don't you invite your family and friends, those who love Jesus, those who don't, to your home, to a park, bring out great food, give a testimony, not too long now, uh, tell them about how much you love Jesus, get someone to pray for you, and then eat to the, to the glory of God and dance the night away. Because <laughs> in the context of all of that, people will be looking thinking, why are you celebrating? Oh, you are celebrating that, that yours is a love that you cannot earn and cannot lose. And you're celebrating the day that God opened your heart to him. And to have that much joy without getting drunk, that's his own miracle nowadays. <laughs> you know, growing up, I used to compartmentalise my life. I used to keep my family and my friends always apart because I never wanted my family to see the sinful part of my life. Well, they already saw that anyway, but the other sinful part of my life. And uh, uh, so coming to Christ was really then about bringing my worlds together. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I just had a couple of conversations with staff members and having pictures of worlds coming together like um, uh, Joyce, who's uh, uh, on staff now, but uh, she was a nanny uh, for many, many years. And she used to tell me, I think she still does, she has nanny parties where nannies who are believers and non-believers, they 
eat together and they celebrate. And in the middle of that, beautiful Jesus conversations happen. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Um, I was talking to two staff who love Pokemon. Any, anyone into Pokemon? <laughs> nothing to be afraid of now. Nothing to be ashamed of now. Come on, put up your hand. Look at Oh, there we have. I got Yes, we got one and two. Okay, there. Not many of you. You're thinking, what's Pokemon? I have no idea. I do not get Pokemon. I don't understand Pokemon. I'm not interested in Pokemon. But what I do know is they gather together, people who love Pokemon, and they swap cards. And I don't know what else they do, but they seem to have a good time doing it. Point being, one of our staff, actually there are two Filipinos on staff, and one of them, Ike, was humming a, uh, one of our Christian songs. And, uh, and someone who's not a believer in the group said, is that a Jesus song? He says, yeah. He said, oh, I love those kind of songs. You know, and uh, uh, I, 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 he said, I love Sister Act. <laughs> I wanted to. Now, that started a lovely little Jesus conversation. You see, my friends, um, believers and unbelievers enjoying relationships around a shared interest where there's joy becomes a beautiful soil for the good news of Jesus to be shared. You know, at Fellowship, we don't really run now outreach events in the way we used to, like sports ministries, partly because there's so many now things established in the community. We're really encouraging people from Fellowship to share your love of your hobby or your sport or whatever with others, and in the context of that, share your love for Jesus. Some Christians only love to hang with, you know, in a holy huddle. Others only like to hang with unbelievers. But I think Matthew here is modelling for us Jesus and his disciples meeting with Matthew and his tax-collecting friends, and that's a beautiful thing. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why Christianity has taught the world tolerance. Uh, Monash University had a study once, and it was trying to work out who in the community were the most tolerant people. And they assumed up front that... Atheists would be tolerant and that Bible-believing Christians would be not tolerant. What's the negative? Intolerant, of course. I was just testing you. Very good. Uh, (laughs) Intolerant. And, uh, And so they did the survey, and one of the questions was, who would you be happy to live next door to you as a as a rule of thumb? Well, the researchers were shocked. The atheists were the intolerant. And as Bible-believing fundamentalist Christians, they were the most tolerant. And you can see why, because we're not working off good versus bad. That's not our yardstick. Our yardstick is, do you know Jesus? Have you met him yet? And so all of a sudden now, whoever you are, whatever you've done, we've only got one question. Would you like to know the saviour of the world? As a follower of Jesus, we're called to count the cost. And so love the loss by having the heart of Jesus. It's interesting to me with all the social media, Google advertising, website promotion of our, of our services, still 68% of people come to fellowship. Why? Because of you, a personal invitation. I've seen so many in the foyer over the years, over the last 18 months rather, uh, here in a Creekside, where a number of you are waiting for that person whom you have invited to come to church. might be a family member, a friend, a work colleague, and you're waiting and the first song is playing and they still haven't come and the second song and time is ticking and you start praying, Lord, please bring them, and you're starting to get nervous that they may not come. And, and we know sometimes 
they do come and you're full of excitement, praise the Lord, and sometimes they don't come for whatever reason and you're feeling down, I guess I just want, you, I want, to, I want to say this to you. Know this. God was glorified by your invitation whether they came or not. God was glorified by your simple act of inviting them to church that they may hear of the good news of, of Jesus. Why? Because you had the heart of Jesus. And what heart was that? To seek and to save the lost. I, for one, consider it an honour to be a part of a church that has you in it. And remember, every person who comes for the first time has only got one question, and it's this. Do you want me here? Do you want me here? Do you really want me here? That's why it's up to us to make sure that along with the welcomers, we join with them in welcoming every person who is new, as well as those who have been coming for years. Jesus, he just keeps opening the door to sinners like you and me. So let's make sure that we keep that door open, eh? Fellowship, we are not a museum for the saints. We are a hospital for sinners. And you know the fruit of all this? In December, we prayed for Alpha, the Alpha course, where people are introduced to Jesus. We prayed for 100 people. Well, at 5 o'clock today, Alpha's going to begin. There are 200 people who are registered to come. Isn't that wonderful? So I think what a, what a good way to end our time together as we've looked at the word and seen the heart of Jesus and the way he called Matthew to himself and then called the other tax collectors to himself, that we would actually pray that the God who opens doors to sinners will open the hearts of those 200 people who are coming to Alpha this very day. And perhaps for some of us here who have not yet said yes to Jesus. Shall we pray? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you left heaven not to call the righteous, but sinners to yourself. Those who are recognized to be sick, those who understand themselves to be not good enough. And that's all of us, Lord. We love the fact that you opened the door to every and any sinner who would come. And now we pray, Father, mindful of those who are with us today or online or in the overflow room or at Alpha this afternoon who have not yet said yes to Jesus, that you would actually open their heart and enable them by your spirit to understand that the one who hung on the cross hung there for them, that they will know of that peace and that love and forgiveness that you offer any. But Lord, we pray that they too, before they say yes to you, that they would count the cost, recognising that you call us to follow you on your terms, to count the cost and to know that in doing that, there is much joy and fellowship that awaits. We love the fact, Lord, that there's going to come a day when we'll be sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you, Lord Jesus, will be the bridegroom at the head of the table. And we will feast and fellowship and delight and praise your name and laugh and, uh, and have hearts that are overflowing with joy. It truly will be perfect one day, perfect the next. And all for your glory, Lord. Father, bring in, bring in those who are lost that they may be found. Bring in today at Alpha and this very day those who are far off that they may be brought near. Bring in those who are your enemies that they may become your friends. Those who are, who are truly lost who need to be found that they may discover that Jesus truly is the beautiful, beautiful Saviour of the world. And all the saints said...
Amen indeed. God bless you.